Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, journalist and podcaster and other stuff. You can check out my work at jessesingle.substack.com, and I'm the co-host of a podcast called Blocked and Reported. Uh, this episode is mostly just going to be me taking whatever questions you have, so feel free to jump into the queue. Uh, I just want to start with a little spiel about Mike Pesca. His show is coming back Monday. He's the host of The Gist. He was with Slate forever. He worked with uh, NPR as well. We just posted an episode we did where we interviewed him about his travails at Slate, where he was basically forced out for expressing the view uh, that Donald McNeil Jr. should not have been fired or forced out from the Times. It's very rare that these are these um, media dust-ups are firings. There's always some sort of arrangement, but it basically becomes uh, infeasible for someone to work there anymore. So uh, an agreement is struck. McNeil uh, used the N-word, mentioned the N-word on a trip with some rich kids in Peru. Mike Pesca in the Slate Slack channel uh, expressed the super minority view there that he should not have been fired or forced out for that. For defending the guy who was fired, Pesca was driven out of Slate. And these sorts of situations are becoming more and more common in journalism, and they're quite corrosive. Uh, some other examples are James Bannon at the New York Times, uh, McNeil, who I already mentioned, very strange one at Reply All, uh, Gimlet with uh, PJ Vote and Sruthi Pinamaneni. These are all just like really crappy situations where people lost their jobs and took major hits to their reputations for not really doing anything wrong. I mean, the cases vary, but there's just this real culture of, of purging and witch hunting uh, in journalism right now that makes me... I don't know. I have some thoughts about it. Um, I just, I, I, I'm torn because I have a general sense of disgust at the level of cowardice on display here. Like, for these witch hunts to unfold, a lot of people have to sit on the sidelines and stay silent, even though they don't like what's going on. And I know there's people who don't like what's going on because they've told me, or they've told me about other people who feel that way but won't speak up. I'm aware of at least a couple incidents where people signed letters denouncing their colleagues because they were pressured to. Because you don't want to be the one person not signing the letter to denouncing your colleague that could really put your own position uh, at risk. So I'm torn because I have a general sense of, uh, sense of disgust at that. But if you have one of these few staff jobs, this is a point I made on the episode we just posted, um, you know, losing your job is a very big deal. And, and I think that's sort of the guillotine hanging over a lot of folks in journalism right now. There are not a lot of staff jobs. And if you have one, you're going to try to hold on for dear life for years. So it's easier to not speak up or to put your name on the letter you don't really believe in. And this leads to really toxic dynamics where I can understand the behavioral decisions at the individual level. I mean, you can understand anything at the at the individual level. I can understand why 14-year-olds join gangs and shoot people. But at the zoomed-out level, you, you can't help but feel a little bit judgy toward adults who won't stand up for their friends and colleagues or who try to get their friends and colleagues fired. And uh, I have some survivor's guilt. I don't have to deal with this bullshit because the only person I have to worry about uh, is Katie Herzog, who is, as we all know, she's a monster in her own right, but not in the way of like trying to get anyone fired. Um but I feel really bad for all the good journalists who, who survived all the other crappy things happening to our field, but who are now stuck in increasingly deranged uh, newsrooms. And I think there's a lot of them. And I also feel some sadness uh, at the amount of really good journalism and, and, and the journalists who are being stymied. You think about the stories that aren't being written because of how scared people are and, and because of the uh, – 
Overton window sort of closing, and it's just really, really bad. Um, I'm going to wrap up this rant, but no one's in the queue, so if you have any questions or comments, you should get in the queue because this is mostly going to be a conversation with you guys. But I guess I'm just curious to think about um, what's going to become of these institutions as the normal people get chased out, which they are in many cases. Like at Slate, Mike Pesca was probably the person who – I'm not saying we need to be majoritarian about everything, but I do think that for healthy newsrooms, you need to be able to talk to the country at large. And there's probably no one there other than maybe uh, Bill Salatin, Will Salatin, who, who – you know, sort of a centristy figure, center left, could could talk to lots of different people, could express disagreement, could explain disagreement. I think you need people like that. Or you're going to have a very stale product. And I think that's why we have a little bit of a golden age for folks who can do that. And that's why Joe Rogan, who I have my problems with, even though I, he was generous enough to have me on, is wildly popular because he really just talks to people. And they are, I know people focus on his worst guess or his craziest guess, and I don't like the way he treats the Alex Jones question, but he, does, he has lefties on there too. He has people from a wide range. He is not judgmental. He just lets them make their arguments. And uh, I think people should be trying to maybe copy that model, obviously with a different approach to folks like Alex Jones. But um, I don't know. What's going on in mainstream journalism is so bad, but the bright side is it's increasingly the case we don't need it. That brings downsides of its own because like I – I don't know. I don't want people to have to go to random substackers, even if it's me, to get good info on stuff, but that's where we're headed. Anyway, rant over. What is up, Mark? Mark, you're going to want to uh, unmute yourself. Sorry. <laughs> I no got worries. it now. Hi, Jesse. Hey. Um, so I got an off-topic question. Obviously, sure. very huge news this week with Microsoft buying out Activision Blizzard. I was just wondering if you have any specific thoughts or opinions on that. Oh, man. Unfortunately, I don't just because I haven't been following it closely other than the, the you know, generally knowing there's been some bad stuff going on at Blizzard and it's had some struggles. Um, I don't. I, 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 I want to... At this conference I was at last week, I was talking to a friend who had one of these VR headsets. I have not experimented with that at all. I'm I'm very intrigued by the future of VR and simulations. Just my my basic take is really rudimentary shared worlds like World of Warcraft can attract tens of millions of people, and the technology is growing so quickly. I I think this is going to be a very big thing. I didn't used to think that because I thought VR would sort of tweak people out too much and feel too weird and the technology would be too expensive. That all seems to be changing quickly. But um, I don't know. Take, take this opportunity. What, what are your thoughts on this? You, you tell me. Yeah, I'm, I must admit I'm, I'm a bit apprehensive about how big they're becoming. Um, yeah. I, w I was quite excited about previous Microsoft purchases, but I kind of feel like this one is so huge, it's starting to cross the line. So I guess we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, uh, thank you. I, I, I'm going to read more about it. You know, when when um, people ask me about stuff I don't know about, I try to be transparent about that. But this is obviously a story I should catch up on because it's really important. So uh, thank you for the question. Cool. Gabby, what's up? Hey, Jesse, I got a straightforward question for you for once. Although I, I would just say in passing on the Pesca thing, I can only agree a hundred percent. I can't, I can't believe it. I, I grew up, I'm in my fifties. So I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and nineties. I remember original PC wasn't like this. I mean, universities and journalism were for, you know, questioning things and for him to just to pose a perfectly reasonable question. And I get the probably background shit that was going on there and so on, but 
I, I completely agree with you on that. And I have a, a kind of related question. You're, you're, you're the leading um, critic of, of wokeness, I think. I mean, there's some great people out there taking it on fifth column and your co-hostess, uh, Portia and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Andrew Sullivan. But I, I, I really like your takes on blockchain reported about that term, even if it's getting a little old. What I just kind of recently discovered, and don't tell anyone I was late to the party, and I'd like to get your opinion on what this means. It, it turns out there's a critique of it from far right to center to far left. I just discovered today, you being in Brooklyn probably knew, the frickin' uh jacobin hates wokeness i saw a really smart lady um uh lou is the last name i think it's Catherine lou she has a book out called virtue hoarding that yeah I, I, i've been meaning to interview her she is yeah. the book that i recommend yeah yeah it's great except for this i agree with it and i'm a right winger as you know except for this one thing about it the deus ex machina or what do you think it would be knowing me so well as you do of socialist revolution like everything to me makes sense except she brings it all back to and that's why we need socialist revolution and we wouldn't talk this way if we were aiming at some of the socialist revolution and for me right. i can take all the critiques of the administrative state but i just don't know how a non-economist. She has my. She's my same age. She has my same complete background. I know her education. Why? Can I ask a different question? Why? Why do people who don't know anything about economics resort to, <laughs> to economic arguments? You know, when they have really good points about everything else. <laughs> and let me let me let me let me tell you my original question too, because it's related. Can you? If you don't mind, two questions. That's one. And relatedly, so I don't forget it, if you'll forgive me, what does it mean to you that Michael Lind in the center, uh, Claremont, my friends at Claremont, Charles Kessler, there's a critique of the administrative state, the professor don't managerial class. By the end of listening to Catherine Liu being interviewed by these Jacobins, frankly, I was ready to support wokeness. <laughs> because it, like, scared me that, that like, if, if wokeness is supporting some kind of, you know, normalcy that kind of works, although it annoys us, I prefer that to socialist revolution. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, the short answer is, is there's, like, a pretty well, you know, principled lefty uh, response to this stuff, which is the, and this is sort of comes from like the Adolf Reed or Walter Benjamin set. Like if you focus so much on these identity characteristics, you'll have a situation where you don't change the structure of society, which is what leftists want to do. And I, I want to do to an extent, but you have like, Oh great. The, uh, the boardroom at Exxon Mobil has a non-binary person and a Latina person. <laughs> and right. it, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a, this is this is where I sit. I I do not think the way we're having this conversation, which is focused hugely on like you know the microaggressions uh, experienced by some minority members in elite settings, there's a huge amount of focus paid on that, and that's that's fine. I don't want people to be microaggressed, but the the to me, it's so clear that wealthy people have exerted a huge gravitational pull on how we talk about injustice, and it's it's really just about bougie shit a lot of the time, which doesn't mean mm -hmm. it's unimportant, but I, I, the, the biggest predictor of how you'll do in America is how much money you have. It, it is mm. much more important than the color of your skin. That doesn't mean rich black people are immune from you know, certain things or that they don't mm -hmm. face racist harassment online, but it's, just, it's so obvious that it's not 1940 anymore. And you really, if you have yeah. money, you can shield yourself from certain things, and that's why we should want more people to have money. So yeah, I, I often go to the the subreddit stupid poll. It's like a takeoff of um, 
identity politics. Those are all lefty uh, identity politics critics. Um, but yeah, so real quick, what was the other question? Just so I get to everyone else. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did I say it already or not? I guess really what I was driving at is like, can you add to what you just said, what it means then that Claremont, I assume you have some familiar with them. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. It might not be a cup of tea. They have as fulsome a critique of what they call the administrative state as these Jacobins of the PMC, the professional management class. I was shocked. I thought the Jacobin people were like the forces of wokeness. I, <laughs> it shows you what I know. They're making fun no, of a lot of like <laughs> a lot of like socialists really. Um, yeah, yeah. Hate that stuff because because it's just so uh, detached from material reality. Material Should we get them together with the Claremonsters who want to have a civil war? Then we can have a revolution and a civil war at once, or should we all become centrists? I, I think we should get the most radical people together and just have a giant vi- violence conflict. You know I love violence. <laughs> Thanks, God bless you. No, I'm with you. I, I don't like violence. Keep up the great work, man. You're the best. Bye. Bye. Siddhartha, what's up? Hey, Jesse, you hear me? Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I uh, share your revulsion with the sort of character assassination witch hunts uh, going on in media and 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 other other uh domains um i i kind of feel like somewhat of an accelerationist though um you know like i hate what's happening to people but uh, to some degree like um i am i don't think these organizations can actually live their values yeah um and i think that like uh you know th- these w- once they sort of go through these this process of purges uh, they become like unlistenable and unconsumable, and I I do feel like audiences respond to this. Um, I also don't think the witch hunts end with purges. Like I don't think you can get everybody out. I think yeah. they just keep continuing until kind of uh, there's a rejection of the hysteria. So that's uh, my thoughts on it. Just wanted to get your take. on Yeah. So when you say accelerationist, you you mean in the sense that like you wouldn't care if Slate just sort of completely self-immolated and was replaced by something else yeah i mean i i you know i was you know a regular consumer of slate uh content um you know i used to subscribe to the sort of the the whole slate feed yeah um so like every every slate podcast i would listen to and i would often read their stuff and i don't tune in at all anymore Uh, yeah i'm I'm not alone in that no and i i wish we had better data about um the readership and listenership trajectories of these of these outlets. I mean, there was another the shit at Reply All didn't get the attention it deserved with um, these two very talented uh, podcast voices and producers just getting really having their reputations ruined over over nothing. And I might write more about that. But Gimlet is a really good example of like it was doing really well. It may have been overvalued when Spotify bought it, but now it's just a complete shell of itself because it let some angry, fairly crazy people really. Um, take the reins in a sense. So yeah, I mean, my main thing is like slate still has some really good reporters who are just trying to keep their heads down and do good work. So I, I can't quite get on board with the accelerationist thing. I, I do want these outlets to understand that they are bleeding listeners and readers. And sometimes I'm worried that they're so attuned to what like their 25 year old junior editors think that they'd almost rather pacify that lot than, than get more readers and get more listeners, which, um, on the one hand, it's crazy. On the other hand, I directly benefit from that because they'll come read my stuff or listen to my stuff instead. But it's just there's like a real failure to to understand where the country's at. And I think that's partly because, I don't know, we progressives are from privileged settings and we can surround ourselves with like-minded people and 
and all our fellow college graduated friends often feel the same way. So there's um not much tolerance for dis- Yeah, completely. Thanks for having Thanks me on, Jesse. Matt, what is up? Hey, Jesse, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, so my question isn't really related to this. I was, I'm just more interested in general in um, why, what your take from the uh, content producers side of Substack is as to why it's become so big, because at least from a content consumer side, like from, from my point of view, I'm like, oh, this is a newsletter. Like this is something that seems to have existed for a long time. And it's kind of amazing how Substack has really it's like a transformative technology, but one that's existed for a while. And so is it just more like their sort of their policies towards freedom of speech? Or is it really that it, there's something on the uh, producer side that makes it much easier? Uh, it's just something that I've been wondering about and interested in. No, it's a fascinating question. And and I think there's something similar with um, what was what was the TikTok precursor? Vine, right? Right. Which was like briefly big, but I think flamed out. I think there's a lot of times uh where someone develops a platform or technology and it's just not the right place at the right time substack was the right place at the right time i think probably because they put monetization first and foremost which correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think like mailchimp or the other predecessors of of substack really pushed the monetization thing Mm, i see well also i mean you so you've had the experience of with blocked and reported i guess um Patreon isn't the same thing as a newsletter, but you've had this experience where you moved from one platform to another, and it seemed like you were just pissed off with uh, uh, Patreon. Patreon. Yeah. Well, we got, you know, Substack paid us to come over. So so where uh, I was yeah, going yeah. with the monetization thing is I think a bunch of people, myself included, realized that our I don't like the the concept of like market value because it's fuzzy, but it it just turned out that we could make much more money writing on our own than we could as mm-hmm. a, as staffers, and that's much more true even for like Iglesias or Matt Taibbi or Glenn Greenwald. And that I think was an explosive realization that even mid tier folks like me were, by one metric, being underpaid. I'm not. I don't mean this as like a normative statement of my like value as a writer because I. I wish like crime reporters in downtrodden cities got paid more, but that's just the way it is now. I think that realization really changed the balance of power and um, put more power in the hands of writers, like realizing they could really call the shots more. And like, you know, I, I don't think Matt Iglesias before this would have ever thought to like really build out his own thing. I don't think Barry Weiss would have thought to build out her own thing. They saw themselves as staffers enmeshed in bigger institutions. Although Iglesias, he was like a co-founder too, but um I think that's part of it because it really puts a spotlight on how much the top writers are worth or even mid-tier writers. And then Substack benefited hugely from the these blow-ups. I mean, from Andrew Sullivan basically being forced out of New York Magazine starting a Substack, Barry Weiss feeling like she had to leave the Times starting a Substack. You can go on and on. Uh, Greenwald's case was different because he wasn't really driven out. It was just <laughs> sort of a, a spat about editing. But I think that drew, you know, if, if there had been a bunch of these arranged witch hunt cases that led to people starting MailChimp's, maybe MailChimp would have would have been the winner, but Substack has really embraced the free speech mantle, and I think that was the right move at the right time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that sounds right. That makes sense. I kind of hope, to be honest, is that I'm worried that the, that the Substackization is only increasing siloing, though, and making it harder to get uh, 
a diverse like as a single person to get a diverse set of opinions because you can't no one wants to pay for like 20 different substacks yeah um i really like actually what uh yasha monk has done with persuasion um where it's just a publication that essentially lives on substack but that has lots of writers um so i know so yeah i mean you're hoping that there's more like that yeah yeah you have that in the bulwark and and the dispatch among sort of never trump conservatives no i mean i'm with you i think um I've written about the siloization problem, ironically, on my Substack, and it's a major issue. As an individual writer, I have no incentive to do anything differently because it's just, right. like, frankly, going well. And, you know, I, I hope someone comes up with a really compelling bundling idea. I think that's the way forward. But for now, I, I Simon Owens is a good sort of media commentator. He had a good piece arguing that, like, the subscription market is not saturated. And I think... You know, if you had to figure out how many tens of millions of Americans could, if they wanted, spend $150 a month on written content, there are a lot of people who can afford that. And that $150 a month is, um, you know, 30 substacks. So I don't know how many people will be willing to do yeah. that, but I think some people might overstate uh, how saturated it is. Yeah, but so the thing for me is like, if I subscribe to The Atlantic, there are going to be some comment. There are going to be some writers because I think I still think the Atlantic is is pretty well run. Yeah. There are going to be some writers there that, if they had Substacks, I probably wouldn't have subscribed to because like I'm not. They're not my favorite, right? Yeah, now. you don't I'm like them enough or feel enough of a sense of connection, right? But I'm sort of I get I I can I'm more likely to read something that they write because I'm subscribed to this this publication that has a wider number of writers, and maybe that's just you know me and it's it's not that's not uniform. That's not how everyone operates, but I think. Even even if people have the capability of subscribing to a number of substacks, it's it's a disincentive. You might just subscribe to twenty substacks that are all exactly what you believe. Right. As no, it, to, like, I don't think yeah. it's good for like healing the nation's divide. I also think, I mean, I should be attendant to the trade off. If my last fifty paywalled substack articles had been public New York Magazine articles, you know, where I used to work, although they have a paywall now too, that probably would have been better in terms of like building my brand further and prestige or whatever. So there's a trade-off there. It's just with Substack, everything is so baldly monetized and you can like almost put a dollar amount to everything you write that, that reflects what people will pay for you. It's just hard to uh, to resist that. But anyway, those these are yeah. good questions and stuff I've been thinking a lot about. So I appreciate it, Matt. Yep. Thanks, Jesse. Colin, what is up? Hey Jesse. Hey. Um, I just wanted to quickly push back on the the criticisms of Joe Rogan uh, regarding Alex Jones. Go for it. No, as as he explained to you, he's been friends with him for a long time. I'm not particularly fond of Alex Jones myself, but after like hearing Katie talk about her friends who have turned their backs on her. And um, over what they kind of see as like un unforgivable opinions and actions, and and uh, I think criticizing her, some of her friends as being sort of cowardly for doing so, I'm I'm kind of having a hard time squaring the two things. Obviously, Katie's not the same as Alex Jones, um, but yeah. she she's worse. Someone, yeah, exactly. She, she, I mean, she probably is worse to somebody who's gone all into the um, trans activist mindset. So I, I feel almost like criti criticizing Joe for that. It's kind of putting yourself in the position of, well, 
deciding who's okay to sort of to sort of cut out and and who's not and it, it kind of makes me a a little uncomfortable just as sort of a, a free speech bro myself yeah i mean i'm not i'm not saying I wouldn't ask Joe Rogan to abandon Alex Jones as a friend, but I, I go back to the one episode I listened to where Jones was on and he was doing his Jones thing, which is just like a, a overstuffed buffet of conspiracy theorizing about everything and just, just endless lying and making stuff up. So if I'm Joe Rogan and he comes on and he says that I'm, I'm going to mangle the actual conspiracy theory, but it was something very close to the governor of Virginia harvesting the organs of aborted fetuses. And I think he like even mentioned maybe the building where they were holding the fetuses. It, there is a point at which your platform is so big that you need to vet a little bit more. And you need to realize that if 1% of your audience is like, oh, holy shit, Alex Jones just you know pulled the veil back on this horrific uh, scandal – like at some point this shit gets so crazy that someone is going to like take a shot at the governor of Virginia. And I, I, I say this lightly because I, even my work, which is so milk toast, has been accused of like causing harm or whatever. But I'm just saying Joe Rogan, you could have Alex Jones on, but just you, you need – I think you need to like corral the conversation a little bit and you can't just let him spout bullshit. And I think one of the problems is Joe thinks that – um producer jamie who's a very nice guy can just like fact check stuff on the fly and that's not how fact check working works it's just very hard you can't just google something and like say that's true or false on the spot so it's an i think that's my critique yeah it's an untenable position to put jamie in i which (laughs) i agree um but my what's also like if you if you want to fact check and i'll sorry i'll let you respond but like yeah he has so much money why don't you just become hire the the best paid fact checker in the country and like once every few weeks have him post or talk about what he got i know that would change the format of the show a little but i just i think either don't have a fact checker at all or have a real one do it producer jamie can't do it yeah yeah i think it, it it's tough on jamie i my my only response to that would be that if somebody was kind of crazy enough to take a shot at the uh governor governor of virginia i remember the the episode you're talking about um there's a probably a decent chance that they were already they would crazy. Have found alex jones yeah yeah anyway. or they would have found yeah. alex jones already it's it's not as if alex jones is is sort of a uh a uh an unknown quantity that's true and i and i you know i should say i'm conflicted about all this stuff because i don't want to slide into the the stuff that you know the true censorious spirit i just think it's fine to say there are certain outlying people where we need to be hold them to higher standards someone like jones has done really bad shit is you know most notably the sandy hook stuff and he's he's just Mm -hmm. an inveterate liar he lies because it makes him money it helps him sell his supplements so anyway that's that's my view Mm -hmm. on that okay thanks uh that's all i Sorry, I'm having some connection issues. I don't know if they're on my end or Colin's end. Hey, Shauna, how's it going? Sorry. I had to retrain myself every time on this. I apologize. (laughs) No worries. Uh, um, I just, uh, to bemoan a little bit on on the newspaper staffing side, and then I have a question for you on on Substack. Sure. I just... um, you know, I always think of the the saying, ironically, like they need to learn to read the room, and I don't mean their their staffing room. That 
I struggle with some of these uh, papers and even the podcasts that they produce where they are, there's so much navel gazing and almost talking down to their audience that they need. um, You know, there's a whole rest of the world or country and world who are not from your elite societies that, you know, somehow we, we still have money to spend and uh, money to purchase whether it be newspaper subscriptions or Substack subscriptions, or we and we still have ears that can listen to podcasts, um, and it just it amazes me um, how they they treat these audiences relative to someone like Joe Rogan, who freely admits he's just a bro. Like yeah. he'll always go back to that, no matter what tangent. And and it's a way for him to get out of difficult situations too. Like he'll play the comedian card, whatever. Yeah. But he has never, at least in the time that I've heard him, talk ill of his own audience or assume that they are idiots that need to be spoon fed how how to believe or what to believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why people like him is he gives off like an accepting vibe, and I think most of the. Um the the podcasters who are succeeding right now pull that off to varying extents. I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't think he should be pulled off Spotify. This idea of like Spotify putting warning labels on him, I think is insane because no one's being consistent about it because the people calling for more fact checking or censorship get stuff wrong all the time with no consequence. It's just, they get stuff wrong in the right political uh, direction. I just think Joe Rogan could have a better show by being a little bit more selective with his guests and with how he pushes back against them and with the fact-checking. And I haven't watched the Josh Zepps one yet, but I that seemed to be a time where he let someone push back a little, which is good. Um, I just think some of these are sort of own goals and that it isn't crucial to the podcast to have on some of these guests who just aren't good or smart. But, you know, who am I to say who's good? I understand the argument, like, who am I to say who's good and smart? I just... Um, yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you. I just, I, I just think there's some low hanging fruit he could pluck to have a better show that brings him less needless controversy. If that makes sense. Oh, sure, absolutely. And and we're just using him as as one example. Yeah. And I will say, I did listen to the the Josh episode. It was a, a really good exchange. So, and to kind of add on to that, what I was thinking was Substack because I'm I'm in the same boat. I pay for multiple newsletters at this point. And I, and I really like the format. I like the access. I am concerned on two fronts. Uh, one, what everyone's already addressed of you've got all these, um, the siphoning I'm concerned about because so much of, at least of what I read is much more opinion based, which I appreciate that. And, and I've obviously I'm paying to, meaning I value these opinions. Um, but I, I worry that, stuff's going to get lost that normally gets paid for by someone like the New York times. And I'm talking about the things that don't necessarily bring in a lot of money, but cost a lot of money bureaus across, across the ocean and doing really tough, long-term investigative pieces that will eat up resources that are extremely valuable. No, I mean, all all the incentives are pointing away from that because it's, you know, if you have a good sub stack, you can make a lot of money just, slinging opinions and I you know there's it's harder and harder to play stuff in magazines because there's cut budgets I I love doing the longer form more investigative stuff it's just I have 
a lot. You know, I'm lucky to have competing demands for my attention, but I know I'm not alone in that. And it's just, it's so much more work and time for less money. So I, I wish the economic incentives could be aligned a little bit better, but it's sort of a, it's like a pundit's game right now, which is unfortunate. But I, I don't think it was ever the case that most long-form investigative journalism really paid the bills. It's just news, newspapers had all these other revenue sources they could use to subsidize. Right, right. And I, I do see some promise, though. I mean, uh, if you read Matt Taibbi's piece, his longer piece about um, what went down in Virginia. Louder, yeah. And I mean, he even, yeah, and he even points back to some of the initial research you did as well, that he was up front with his readers like, hey, you're not going to get pieces from me because I want to invest some time. Yeah. my time to give you something more valuable. And I, I think it, it worked out really well. And I could certainly see you doing that with yours. And one last thing, just a, an idea for Substack, and, and this not for Substack to do, but you as individual journalists is almost like cross editing or cross pollinating, particularly with people that you might not agree with. Like yeah. you go guest write um, for the dispatch or, or back and forth because Again, as uh, someone who's not an elite but appreciates diversification and viewpoints and experience, I think that's a great way to uh, pollinate, cross-pollinate as well. I'm with you. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that, Sean. That all makes sense to me. All right. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You too. All right. Well, Patrick, and then we'll uh, wrap up with Alexa. But these have been really good questions, and I appreciate it. So, Patrick? Hey, Jesse. Hope you're having a good Friday. That's a, you, you are not a dog, correct? That's just an image of your dog. You're a human? Uh, I am actually a person in a dog suit. Ha, I like that. Uh, yeah, uh, that's actually my sister's dog. Uh, but yeah, um, anyway, so I wanted to get your thoughts kind of on deplatforming. Uh, usually it kind of works that in uh, lefty and liberal spaces, they want to pretty much purge any kind of heretic who doesn't have the right idea. And the idea behind that, I guess, is that uh, if uh, this kind of poison holds root, it might, like, poison the message, uh, uh, make other people believe it. Yeah. But at the same time, there's also this kind of, what doesn't make sense to me, idea that we can't have our side go on to Tucker Carlson at all because uh, he's having us on for bad reasons or other kind of thing, and we're almost legitimizing them. But I don't understand kind of why the idea that, like, having Batia – or Glenn Greenwald go on, like, Tucker is so bad, whereas, yes, they may be crit critiquing some points on the left, but still getting out their message is ultimately a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I have, I don't know what my line is in terms of who I would or wouldn't go on. There's obviously some folks where I wouldn't go on just because I have such disagreement with them, but, but it doesn't really make sense, does it? Because... Assuming it's a right-wing show that mostly has right-wing guests and that you can take 10 minutes and not be a right-wing guest and, and you know spread your own politics and maybe push back, uh, I, I don't know why you wouldn't take advantage of that. I mean, I'm if I went on Tucker Carlson, I'm not platforming Tucker Carlson. He's the much bigger name, and I, I've never quite understood it. I think a lot of this comes down to the more rules you have and the more the rules change, the easier it is to sort of browbeat and bully people. And I think there's a lot of people, unfortunately, in journalism right now who love rules and who love enforcing the rules as long as them and their friends get to do so. And it makes for – that's you know, the reason for this room and my spiel at the top. It just makes for a very toxic workplace. But I'm not sure – 
I think this is what you're pointing to. I'm not sure any of this is quite coherent or ideologically principled. Well, I would agree with you. I don't really think it is. I think whoever's kind of at the lever of the machine controlling the rules kind of dictates whatever they want in order to benefit them. It's kind of cynical, even though I think it's cynically used, even though I don't necessarily think people have cynical intentions. I do believe people uh, are following their own kind of internal ideals. I just don't think people necessarily have the good sense to look outside of themselves and ask themselves if what they're really doing is principled or not. But no, and uh, and I'd like to think people on the left would have a little bit more pride and like confidence that like not that this is realistic, but I'd like to think they could say, you know what, I'm going to go on Tucker Carlson and help convince his uh, viewers that they're wrong about X or Y or Z. Yeah, like a little bit more of that like attitude rather than this sense of just just sort of neuroses as far as the eye can see and people terrified of of platforming the wrong person or saying the wrong thing. There's very little like. Well, I was going to say there's very little fuck you in progressivism right now, but there is, there is like the fuck you, you're a bigot, but I want more of the fuck you, we can win this thing, which it feels like. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, my last thing I would want to ask is, uh, with Pesca coming back, I had never actually knew him too much, so I'm glad you guys are talking about the story. I kind of want to look into his podcast. Uh, have you listened to The Gist at all? Do you have any uh, episodes you would recommend for a newbie? Um, off the t- yeah, I've listened to it a lot. I just, it, you know, it last aired a year ago. I would just look back at the 10 most recent ones and see which topics appeal to you. It's, it's a unique style and he has a really good voice for it. And I just highly recommend it as like a good nugget sized daily news podcast. So I think wherever you dip in, uh, I would imagine you'll enjoy it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Final caller, Alexa, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, you too. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad you turned off your Alexa after the last time it went off. Oh, that's funny. She just didn't respond this time. I, she's oh. still on. <laughs> um, well, you had me thinking when a couple callers ago when you were talking about Alex Jones and um, like you're calling for free speech, but you're kind of putting a line on things like Alex Jones and worrying like some psycho might hear something and then try to assassinate the Virginia governor. But I mean, that is a huge if, and you can't be worried about crazy people. Like the guy that shot up Gabby Giffords, he went crazy over like punctuation and things like that. That's, that's a form of censorship. If you say, Oh, if you say this, then X will happen. I, I mean, people say that to you. You're erasing trans existence. If you say anything anti-trans, then people will die. Yeah. And I mean, I was just thinking also that there's a reason that the old ACLU protected the rights of the Nazis to protest in a Jewish neighborhood. Because, I mean, once you draw the line at the worst speech, quote unquote, that line moves very quickly. And many on the left see no distinction between Alex Jones or Ben Shapiro, they're all the same. Like anybody right of them, they all condemn them as all Nazis and none of them should speak. Well, so so what do you – well, first of all, I would just draw the distinction between having the right to say something, which I, I do defend basically always, and, and whether you should choose to have someone on your podcast. So what do you think Rogan's response should be when Alex Jones comes on his podcast and spreads a crazy conspiracy theory about, about the governor of Virginia? I mean, he can say whatever he wants in response. I don't think your concern should be, wow, some psycho might now go after the governor and assassinate him, though. I think that is a a ridiculous what if. 
Yeah, I guess I just think if you have millions of people listening, I, I I don't know exactly where the line is on this. I just think if you have millions of people listening to, you probably have some responsibility at some point for, unless the assumption is no one is persuaded by Joe Rogan or no one would believe something they wouldn't have believed otherwise. I just it feels like the buck should stop somewhere, right? Like if he had someone on who, um you know, said AIDS can be spread through holding hands or something really outlandish. Isn't there some line where you would say maybe Joe Rogan just for quality control purposes shouldn't have this individual on? Maybe for quality control purposes, but not for fear of, oh my God, some stupid person is going to listen to this and believe it. We have to protect the world from that stupid person hearing these ideas and getting the wrong idea. That's fair enough. I mean, maybe my example isn't the best uh, way to make my point or isn't realistic. I just, I don't know. I really cringed when I heard that subject. So, and I obviously cringe at a lot of the stuff Jones says because I, I just think he's committing bad acts by like bamboozling and scaring his audience to sell stuff. So, um, but just, I, there has to be a right to be stupid and believe in stupid things. Well, I think what we're getting at is the difference between that, the right to be or hear those things, which I agree in, versus the decision of to whom, you know, should I invite Alex Jones on to spread that stuff on my particular podcast? That's where I think Joe made the wrong decision, though I agree maybe my example was a little um, too much. I got to think about this more because I, I don't have fully coherent views on it, to be honest, but um, I appreciate the pushback. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. All right. Well, this was uh, these were really good questions today. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in and listening and participating. I would just ask that if you like the show, you spread the word about it. The more uh, listeners and followers I have, the better. Uh, so tell a friend, tell an enemy. I think that's all I had to say about that. Uh, thank you again. I hope you guys all have a great weekend. Farewell. <laughs>